0: Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, please check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. Good morning to you. What a glorious weekend we had last week as we considered the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You might remember that Jesus told his disciples ahead of time what was going to happen to him. Listen to Mark 10, 33 and 34. Jesus said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And then he also said this in John 16, verses 20 to 22. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And then before he ascended to heaven, he said, And lo, I am with you always. Amen? Amen. Well, today we're going to head back into the Old Testament and look at the next installment of our series called The Story, which is God's story. So far in this story, we've looked at creation, we've looked at the fall of man into sin, and the promise of God's rescue, rescue and the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this morning we're gonna look at the first 18 chapters of the book of Exodus. It's the account of God's people, the nation of Israel, being forced into slavery for 400 years and then miraculously rescued from slavery by the hand of Almighty God. And just as Jesus foretold his disciples about his death and resurrection, the Lord also foretold Abraham about this part of the story. I read from Genesis chapter 15. Then the Lord said to Abram, "'Know for certain that your offspring "'will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs "'and will be servants there, "'and they will be afflicted for 400 years. "'But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, "'and afterward they shall come out with great possessions.'" That was prophesied 500 years before the exodus actually happened. And then at the end of the book of Genesis, it says this, "'Joseph said to his brothers, "'I'm about to die.'" but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice the promise, they shall come out, or in other words, exit, thus the book of Exodus, which means a going out, and that's what we're going to look at this morning, so let's pray. Father, you are our God, and we are your people. And this is your word. And I pray, Lord, that you'd open the hearts of your people, that your word might penetrate to the very core of our soul, that your word might be living and active and powerful in our lives today. Holy Spirit, we invite your presence and your power among us. Lord, help us to be transformed. Help us to see Jesus more clearly. Help us to understand your word. Help us, Father, to as we look into your love and your mercy toward us that we would love you and follow you and serve you and share you everywhere that we go. Lord, give us a heart that is excited about you this morning. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Thank you that your faithfulness is great. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, if you have a tablet or a Bible, I would uh, invite you to open up to the book of Exodus, which is the second book in the Bible right after Genesis. And uh, we're going to cover 18 chapters, so I'm going to kind of give you a little heads up in terms of what each chapter is basically about, and then I'm going to share just some verses here and there that will sort of lead you along through the story, okay? So in Exodus 1, we see the nation of Israel, also referred to as the Hebrews, becoming slaves in Egypt, and in the first few verses, it talks about how Israel began as a group of 70 people. All right, so you had the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, and their children were 70 people when they left Canaan and went into Egypt. Well, if you look at chapter 12, verse 37, when they were exiting the Exodus that we're going to get to here in a few minutes, it says that there were 600,000 men plus women and children. So, probably at that point, the nation of Israel is about 2 million people. So in the 400 years they're here in Egypt, they've gone from 70 people to about 2 million people. So when the Bible says they increased greatly, they did. Now, you notice here, starting in verse eight, chapter one, verse eight, it talks about that enslavement, but it also talks about God's blessing. Let me read, starting in verse eight. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, "'Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. "'Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, "'and if war breaks out, they join our enemies "'and fight against us and escape from the land. "'Therefore they set taskmasters over them "'to afflict them with heavy burdens. "'They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. "'But the more they were oppressed, "'the more they multiplied, "'and the more they spread abroad.' and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. You see, when the Lord God is your God, you might not, you might have to go through affliction and go through oppression. And in this case, even servitude or slavery, but God doesn't continue, he continues to work and to increase you and to multiply you and to grow you up. And that's the lesson that we learn. Well, the rest of the chapter declares that Pharaoh, uh, since the Hebrews were multiplying and increasing so many in numbers and in strength, he asked the midwives to kill the male Hebrew babies that were born and then actually put out an edict to all the Egyptians that whenever you saw a male Hebrew baby, you should throw it in the Nile and put it to death. But anyway, despite that, the midwives didn't obey Pharaoh and the people didn't obey because God's blessing was upon them. When you go to chapter 2, we see that Moses is born, and he's raised by Pharaoh's daughter, and so he's hidden for three months in the house where he was born, but after that, his mom and dad built a little basket and made it watertight and put Moses in it and actually put it in the reeds along the Nile River, hoping that one of the Egyptians might find him and then raise him, which is exactly what happened, and it happened to be Pharaoh's daughter that discovered Moses, and after Uh, Moses' own mother, nursed him, and when he was weaned, then he was returned to the court of Pharaoh to be raised by Pharaoh's daughter. But then it talks about when Moses grew up, he actually was defending uh, a Hebrew slave and actually killed the Egyptian that was mistreating him. And so, Pharaoh heard about it, and so Moses escapes to the land of Midian, where he meets the priest of Midian, who has two names. One is Ruel, one is Jethro, Ruel, and then Jethro. So you see both of those names. That is Moses' father-in-law. And he dwells with him, and Ruel, or Jethro, gives Moses his daughter Zipporah as a wife. Matt, did we come up with a, 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 okay, all right. Midian would just be sort of south of uh, the nation, or Canaan at that time. So even south farther than the Dead Sea. So in that area, that's where Midian would have been, crossing the desert to get there. Now, turn to verse 23 in chapter 2, because we see here that that the Hebrews begin to cry out and that God hears their cries. Chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. What did God know? You ever wonder when you see things like that? Well, if you jump ahead to chapter three, verse seven, it's God talking about God. He says, "I know their suffering." I think what God knew is that the, His people, the nation of Israel, were suffering, and in His predetermined plan, it was time that they should be rescued. And so that's what we're gonna look at now. So in chapter three, Moses is called and challenged by the Lord to go to Egypt and deliver God's people from bondage. Look at verse one. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, see there's the second name, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, which is also Mount Sinai. Again, two different names for the same mountain, the mountain of God. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Just one short bit of application here God saw their suffering, He knew their suffering. Whatever you might be going through at the time, at this time right now, maybe it's some type of physical suffering or relational or financial or just caught in a hard place in your life right now and just wondering, what is God doing? What is his will for my life? What's the purpose of this thing that I'm having to go through right now? God has not lost track of you. He sees what you're dealing with. He knows the anguish of your heart. He knows the difficulties that you have right now. He has not forgotten. He sees it. But the thing that we deal with and struggle with at times is that we have a hard time being patient and waiting on God's perfect timing for things to unfold or for things to be developed within us that only difficulty can bring, that waiting upon the Lord... I mean, let's face it, in our humanness, in our flesh, when everything's going well, we spend less time on our knees. But when things are hard, when we can't do something about our issue and we have to put it in the hands of God, we're closer to the Lord. We pray more. We seek his, his word more. We, we lean on others and ask for them to pray for us. And even Jesus in his humanity, it says that he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. So if the perfect son of God had to suffer in order to learn, humanly speaking, how to become fully obedient, then surely you and I are going to have to do that as well. But God has not lost track of you, all right? So Moses is all excited probably about this, that God's going to go and rescue his people. But he's not so excited what happens in verse 10. Look at verse 10. So the Lord says, I'm going to go do this. And then he says to Moses, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I'm going to do this, but guess what? I'm going to do it through you, Moses. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So God calls and he challenges and now it's up to Moses to step up to the plate. Ever been there in that position? <laughs> Maybe some of you are there right now. Well, God sees that Moses is a little bit reluctant, so he gives him some promises here. Go down to verse 17. He says, And I promise I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, And they will listen to your voice and you and the elders of israel shall go to the king of egypt and say to him the lord the god of the hebrews has met with us and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the lord our god key verse verse 19 pay attention to this but i know (laughs) god knows everything he says I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. That's something, isn't it? In other words, you're not only going to get to go by the skin of your teeth, but when you go, you're going to plunder Egypt when you go. There's gonna, they're gonna, you're, I'm going to cause you to find favor in the people of Egypt, and they're going to bless you with material blessings as you go out. So God just heaps on promise after promise after promise. Well, in chapter four, Moses finally is convinced to go to Egypt and God gives Moses' brother Aaron as a spokesman and they rally support among the leaders. But again, it's a process. Have you noticed that in your own life? It's a process, you and the Lord growing up, hearing his call, being willing to step up to the plate, to by faith, go and do what God's called you to do, all right? Let's just look at a couple of verses here. Uh, well, first of all, in the first few verses there, it talks about two signs that God's going to give to Moses to lend credibility to the fact that God's called him. He said, I'm going to give you a couple of signs that you can show the people of Israel so they'll, so they'll know that I'm the one who sent you. First of all, take your staff and just throw it on the ground, and it becomes a serpent, and then grab it by the tail, You know, Moses is afraid at this point, but the Lord says, grab it by the tail. He grabs the serpent by the tail, and guess what? It becomes a staff again. And then he says, take your hand, put it into your cloak. When he pulls it out, it's leprous. He's got leprosy. And then God says, now put it back in and pull it out again, and it was clean. So he gives him these two signs to encourage him that I'll show the people of Israel my power so they'll know that you're coming on behalf of me. And then Moses still argues with the Lord again about his choosing. Look at verse ten. Now I know you can't relate to this because I know when God calls you to something you obey right away. But Moses is just stubborn. He's, he's he lacks faith. He's insecure. So no, I know none of you are insecure on that. But, but but listen to this poor guy. Verse ten. But Moses said to the Lord, "Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent." Most pastors say that about themselves. I am not eloquent. What am I doing up here? Either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Then the Lord said to him, all right, buddy, who's made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind or eloquent or not? All of those things. Is it not I, the Lord? Moses, aren't you exactly as I have made you to be? Why do you think you are who you are and and why you're this way? I made you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are not an accident. I made you just the way I wanted you to be because God loves to show his power through weak people. You know, if, if, if we had it all together, if, 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 if we were just huge in people's eyes or even in our own eyes, which is even worse, we, you know, where's God's power displayed there? God has to humble us at that point so that we're weak again and realize that, no, it needs to be God's strength that comes shining through his power, not our power. So then he says, now, therefore, go, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak oh poor guy just keeps digging the hole but he said oh my lord please send someone else he just keeps wanting to back down out of this assignment that god has given him i mean god's been working on him 40 years with a bunch of sheep you think he'd be up for something a little different at that point you know what i mean "'Please send someone else.' "'Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, "'and he said, okay, is there not Aaron, your brother, "'the Levite? "'I know that he can speak well. "'Behold, he's coming out to meet you, "'and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. "'You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, "'and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth "'and will teach you both what to do. "'He shall speak for you to the people, "'and he shall be your mouth, "'and you shall be as God to him.'" And take in your hand this staff which, with which you shall do the signs. Okay. You don't want to go by yourself. Let your brother Aaron go as well. All right? Let You speak to him, and then he'll speak to Pharaoh, and I'll, I'll be with each of what you say. I'll tell both of you what to say and what to do, and don't forget the staff and the signs. It's like, how, how much does God have to do to finally convince him? Well, he's finally convinced, and he and Aaron head to Egypt, And they do the signs. And it says in verse 31 the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Wow, God finally gets him there with a little push and a nudge, and his brother Aaron, and with a staff that he can do signs with. And so he finally goes. Things are moving in the right direction. But guess what happens in chapter 5? The confrontation with Pharaoh begins. The battle begins. Uh huh. And what happens when you're going to do something for the Lord and it, and, and it gets to be hard, that there's a battle going on? Then you begin to again doubt. And that's what happens with, with Moses. Look at verses 1 and 2. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? Who is this Yahweh, this God of yours, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So the battle begins. And then Pharaoh decides that, okay, I'll just one-up you a little bit. From now on, the bricks that you make to build these cities and all these things, you're going to do it without us giving you straw. You're going to have to go out and gather your own straw to make bricks. You can imagine how that went over with the people. I think Moses and Aaron both about lost their lives at that point. But God intervenes. And then he reminds them again of what he will do for them in chapter 6, verse 6. See, God is not short on encouragement. He will encourage you. If you just keep taking a step forward in the direction he wants you to go, he will affirm you. He will encourage you. And See, here's what he says. I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Signed and sealed, here's what I'm going to do. For 500 years I've been saying this, and this is what I am going to do. The land is yours, and I'm going to bring you out of Egypt and take you back to the land that I promised the patriarchs, your forefathers. Well, how do you think Moses responds at this point? He still doubts the Lord. I don't think we have it up on the screen, but in verse 12, uh, but Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? See, he runs into a little opposition. He tries to share God's will and God's plan with the people of God, and they won't listen to him. And he's thinking, if if my own people won't listen to me, how is Pharaoh going to listen to me? You ever know anybody like that that just, you know, gets so insecure that with a little lack of people following or have you ever been speaking to a group of people and they, they, they just sit there and there's no amens or shouts or anything coming back at you? Hey, amen, it happens, Right? But what do you got to do? You got to just keep doing what the Lord tells you to do. Don't worry about the fickleness of people and their response to what God has said to them. Do what your own heart tells you to do, which is to love God and to follow him. Finally, Moses begins to get the point, but boy, it has taken a long time for God to bring him around. Thank God he's patient with us. hmm And it's that same patience that God wants us to use with people that we're working with, whether our kids or grandkids or people that we're discipling or people at work or our neighbors or people that you just know. I mean, God's patient with you, so be patient with them, but keep pointing them in the right direction. Well, in chapters 7 through 10, we see the plagues, and I'm not gonna go through them individually and talk about each of those chapters for lack of time, but these plagues... uh, Basically, they're to accomplish what God said was going to happen. Pharaoh's going to have to be pressed. He's going to have to be compelled to let the nation go. In other words, I'm going to have to come down on him with a 2 before before he's going to let you go out of the country. And he also wants to bring judgment on the lowercase g gods of Egypt. And so all of these different plagues that come about have something to do with one of the gods that the Egyptians worship, which we don't have time to go into today, but just take my word for it. He's coming down on Pharaoh. He's coming down on the country. He's coming down on these so-called gods of Egypt. The first plague is that water is turned into blood. Everything in the country, all the water, turned into blood. Now, and the second plague is they have frogs in their home. Ladies, can you get excited about that? You go to bed at night, you'll throw back the covers, and, you know, a dozen frogs jump up at you, and You go to open the uh, refrigerator, and there's frogs in there. You go to see how the stew's coming. Oh, there's some frogs. I mean, frogs are just everywhere. Now, uh, some of you young people here might think that sounds pretty exciting. What what do you think, Israel? Would you like to have some frogs in your house? That'd be kind of fun, wouldn't it? Hop around with them and everything. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Ribbit. Okay. Okay. Uh, The next plague is gnats, throws up some dust in the air, and there's all these gnats just swarming around. And then swarms of flies. And then you have the Egyptian livestock dying off. And then boils on man and beast, heavy hail, dense swarms of locusts. What the hail hasn't destroyed, the locusts come in. There's not a green blade of grass or leaf anywhere in the country. And then darkness for three days. Now, keep in mind also that these plagues just happened to the Egyptians. In the land of Goshen, a a piece of land that's been set aside for the Israelites, they don't have to go through any of these plagues. God has made a distinction between his people and the Egyptians. Well, why the plagues? Well, if we go back to chapter 3, verse 19, that I said to note, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand see pharaoh's heart is being hardened god some it's said that sometimes even god hardens his heart because god wants him to be stubborn in this place because god wants to display his power and he knows pharaoh's not going to let the people go unless he comes down on him and convinces him and then we just read in chapter 6 where it says i will take you to be my people i will be your god and you shall know that i am the lord not only does he want to display his power through a stubborn king of Egypt, but he also wants the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, to know that he is their God, that he is a powerful God, that he is a God that needs to be feared and reverenced and respected, so thus the plagues. Uh, in these chapters, uh, at least what I could count, there's at least 18 times where it says that either Pharaoh's heart was hardened or that Pharaoh hardened his heart or that the Lord hardened pharaoh's heart it's said all those different ways ultimately ultimately it's the lord who's in charge and his purposes are going to be accomplished god's will is going to be done he's sovereign Um, i'll just give you a couple of examples here in the book of job remember what job went through basically lost everything did well for a while, but after a little bit of, of time, he began to kind of squabble with God and just say, yeah, why, Lord, I've been loving you, sacrificing to you, worshiping you, following you. Why have all these things happened? So God, in the last few chapters of Job, begins to speak to Job, and he says things like this, hey, hey, Job, where, where were you when I laid the foundations of the universe, of the world? Uh, where were you, you know? So he just begins to ask him a series of questions. So Job finally says this in the last chapter. He says, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And at the end of that section, he says, therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. And then in the book of Daniel, when uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon begins to look around at his kingdom and just say, oh, look at everything that I've built. I'm such a wonderful person such a powerful king and of course god then sends him away for seven years to live like an animal his hair grows out his nails grows i mean he must have been a sight but anyway he finally comes to his senses it says at at the end of the days of the days i nebuchadnezzar lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and i blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? You might not always like what God is doing, but we don't have ground to stand on and say, Lord, or or to question him. His will and purposes will be done. We have to understand that he has a good purpose in mind. And then I just want to go to Romans chapter 9, where it talks about God's predetermined plans, his his, uh, election. It says in verse um, 14, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, Paul says. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but it depends on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Our lives are in his hands, folks. But just remember that that God is a good and loving God. God always desires the best. But also remember this, there are aspects about God that is hard for us to understand. For instance, we might be tempted to think that when God does things to display His power and to show His glory, that that could be a little bit egotistical. And it would be for any of us, but for the God who didn't need anything but created all things, that glory is rightfully His. It would be unjust, it would be wrong for Him not to receive that glory and that praise and that trust so we have to make sure we understand who god is by the way in two weeks we're going to start a class called the attributes of god i encourage you to come to that nine o'clock starting on the 22nd i believe okay all right so let's move on to exodus chapter 11 we're making our way through we're getting there hang in there so we see in Exodus 11 then that this 10th plague is foretold. Look at verse 4, Exodus 11, verse 4. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. This is the 10th plague. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle... There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But look what happens with Pharaoh. Look what God chooses to do down in verse 10. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of the land. Now in chapter 12, We see the Passover being instituted, all right? And then we also see uh, the significance of the blood. If you'll go ahead to verse 10. I'm sorry, verse 12, verse 12. It's talking about the Lord's Passover. It says, "'For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, "'and I will strike all the firstborn "'in the land of Egypt, both man and beast.'" And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Listen to this. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Remember, they had been instructed to take the blood of a goat or a lamb and put it on, on the, the doorpost and the lintel of the house. And when God came through to destroy the firstborn in Egypt, when God saw the blood, he would pass over, and that's why it's called the Passover. So being covered by the blood is important. Just like in our case, you know, being washed by the blood of the lamb is so important. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. We have to see Jesus as our substitute, who died in our place, and by that blood, then we are covered and saved, and God passes over to of us, passes over us in terms of death, and gives us eternal life. In verse twenty-nine, we see the plague being carried out. Let's read there. Chapter twelve, verse twenty-nine. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. So God carries out this tenth plague. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he, Pharaoh, summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. It's interesting he added that, and bless me also. I think Pharaoh is beginning to understand who this God of Israel is and the blessing that he has put upon Moses and Aaron and the people. And he says, give me that same blessing, please. Seems like he's humble a little bit at this point. Well, in chapter 13, uh, we see the consecration of the firstborn. God says, you know, since your firstborn were spared, then I want you to consecrate them and set them apart for me. And so certain firstborn animals then were either killed, and the firstborn of of humans then has to be a sacrifice to set it apart uh, and to thank God that he spared the firstborn of the Israelites And then we see as God is leading them out of Egypt, that God puts a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to lead them. You find that in verse 21 and 22. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. When God sends you out on a mission and you don't quite know where you're going, just trust him. He's going to show you the way. He's going to lead you. In this case, he uses these, these, this cloud of, of, uh, and, the, and the pillar of fire to lead him by day and by night. But in chapter 14, we see that Pharaoh's heart is hardened again. After grieving over all the dead in Egypt, he begins to finally realize, uh-oh, what? What have we done our slave labor is gone so in verse 4 it says i will harden pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and i will get glory over pharaoh see god is seeking his glory and all this host and the egyptians shall know that i am the lord god not only wants the nation of israel to know that he is the lord but he wants the nation of egypt to know that he is the lord for pharaoh to finally bow the knee and to give god glory and so they set out after the people, and the people become afraid, of course. I mean, here's Pharaoh with all these chariots and all these horses and all these men coming after them. And the, 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 the cloud and the fire has led them to a place where they're kind of backed up against the Red Sea, and they have nowhere to go. And, of course, they come to Moses and say, what are we, we going to do? We could have died in Egypt. Why would you bring us out here? They're still grumbling. They continue to grumble. I don't want to get off on that. Okay, verse verse 13. I don't want to grumble about grumbling. You know what I mean? Verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. God is not just going to turn them away. He's going to destroy the whole army of Pharaoh and that says the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. I think that's sort of comical, that last part, and you have only to zip it. <laughs> it's like, okay, enough. I've heard enough. It kind of reminds me of Second Chronicles chapter 20, where the nation is being attacked by three different enemies, and uh, God speaks through a prophet and says to Jehoshaphat and the the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judea, says, fear not, the battle is not yours, but God's. I love that line. How many times when we're struggling, when we're in a battle, and we're struggling with something, and we feel like we're just being overcome, and our strength is beginning to wane, and we're getting tired and weary, and our faith faith meter is going down, We just need to remember that we just need to stand firm have faith see god's salvation and to remember that it's not our battle it's god's battle and there's going to be battles folks until that final battle when the lord returns as a warrior on a horse prepared for battle with a sword in his mouth the word of god to destroy the and there's there's going to keep being battles Don't think that you're going to make things comfortable in your life and there's not going to be a battle. That's not reality. Until that final battle is fought, there's going to be battles. So wake wake up every day and say, I'm a warrior for Christ. I'm more than a conqueror. I have victory through my Lord Jesus Christ. I'm triumphant in Christ. My life is hidden with Christ in God. Begin to quote those verses that you remember who God is and who you are and what he's going to do for you so that whatever battle you're in, you can face it with faith. You walk by faith and not by sight, all right? So the, what's the Lord tell Moses to do here in verse 16, still in chapter 14? Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And, of course, the Egyptians then, God removes this pillar so they can follow the Israelites. And they're probably looking and thinking, well, they got through okay. Let's go ahead. Let's go after them. But when they get in the midst of the sea, God begins to confuse them. And their chariots are unable to go through, whether he softens up the ground or whatever. But they're stuck there, and the waters come in, and not a one of them escape. God took care of that. And in verse 31, it says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Chapter 15, Moses sings a song of triumph to the Lord. He says, the Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. And Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron, she's a prophetess, and she comes out and dances and has tambourines. The other ladies come out, and they dance, and they're having a good time, and they say, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And so they begin to praise the Lord for this great victory that he has won against the Egyptians. Chapter 16, they're hungry. What do you think they do? (laughs) Thank you, Lael. Yes, they grumble. (laughs) So they they go to Moses. Moses goes to the Lord. And what does God send? Manna. He sends bread from heaven. That in the morning, and in the evening, he sends quail, he sends meat. Chapter 17, now they're thirsty, just kind of like eating popcorn. You eat popcorn, then all of a sudden it's like, you know, I'm kind of thirsty. So they eat, and now they're thirsty. So they go to Moses. We need water. God says, go to that rock, hit it with the staff, and water comes out. And so their thirst is taken care of. And it's interesting. Uh, Look at chapter 17, verse um, 8. This battle with uh, Amalek, the Amalekites. Uh, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joseph did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overpowered Amalek and his people with the sword. That's interesting, isn't it? (laughs) Who's holding up your hands? Remember I said you're going to be in a battle, and as long as you're trusting the Lord and looking to him and holding those hands up and praise to him, you know, the the battle's going to go well. But when you get weary, when when you begin to doubt, when your faith begins to wane, you need good friends around you that will come and hold, supposedly hold your hands up or bolster your faith and help you to keep trusting and to walking through whatever battle or oppression you're going through at the time. And the other question is, whose hands are you holding up? Now, that's part of what city groups are meant to do, prayer partners, people that you come together with and get to know, because at one time or another, the battle's gonna make any of us a little bit weary. We're gonna begin to doubt what God is doing. But when we have good friends around us that we can lean on, I'd begin to sing the song Lean on Me, but then I know I'd lose y'all, so I won't do that. But I'd love to sing it for you sometime. So uh, anyway, the last chapter, chapter 18, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, remember what his other name was? Ruel, Ruel or Jethro, brings Zipporah, his daughter, Moses' wife, and their two sons, and is going to reunite the family. So when he gets there, he hangs around a little bit and begins to observe Moses. Moses is sitting all day long and making judgments and overseeing disputes and spats and those kind of things among the people of Israel. People are standing in line forever, and Jethro looks at this and says, what in the world are you doing? Don't you have a few good men that can take care of some of the lesser issues and problems and then bring the greater ones to you? So Moses takes Jethro's advice, which was a good thing. Now, back in December, uh, Pastor Grant preached a message called Jesus, the True and Better Moses, and he made some comparisons between Moses and Jesus, which I want to remind you of right now, okay, as we think about Moses delivering Israel from Egypt, and we think about Jesus then who delivered us from Satan, sin, and death. So listen to some of these comparisons. When Moses was a baby, Pharaoh gave an order to kill all the male Hebrew babies, When Jesus was a baby, King Herod gave an order to kill all the male Hebrew babies around Bethlehem. Baby Moses was hidden in a basket in Egypt. Mary and Joseph took Jesus to Egypt to hide him. Moses willingly left Pharaoh's palace and royal courts for the sake of his people. Jesus, the royal son of God, willingly left the glory of the heavenly court to come to earth for the sake of his people. Moses contended with the magicians of Egypt and displayed God's miraculous and authoritative power over them. Jesus contended with evil spirits and demonstrated that same miraculous authoritative power. Moses was often rejected by his own people. Jesus was rejected by his own people. Prior to to delivering Israel from their slavery to the Egyptians, Moses instituted the Passover Prior to Jesus delivering his people from their slavery to sin and death, he instituted communion. Moses delivered Israel from their bondage in Egypt. Jesus delivered his people from their bondage to sin and death. Moses fed people in the wilderness with manna from God. Jesus fed thousands with five loaves and two fish and was himself the bread of life. Moses interceded for the nation of Israel and was even willing to offer up his own life on their behalf. Jesus, too, intercedes for his people and did offer up his life on our behalf. So as we close out this part of the story, God's story, let me end by sharing a few verses that remind us that Jesus is truly the one who rescues and delivers people from Satan, sin, and death. Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. Jesus said, "'The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me "'to proclaim good news to the poor.'" He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then in John 8, he says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How quickly they forget. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And then lastly, in Hebrews chapter 2, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through, through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Just as Moses set the children of Israel free, Jesus came to set us free. Here's how I would summarize the message this morning It took God's mighty power through Moses to free the Israelites from slavery to the Egyptians. It took God's mighty power through the Lord Jesus Christ to free us from Satan, sin, and death. Jesus is the true and better Moses. Jesus is the hero of the story. Do you know him? Because see, that's where the story becomes very personal. Do you know this Jesus, the true and better Moses, the true and better David, the true and better Abraham, the true and better Adam? This whole book is about him. It points to him, looks back on him, and looks forward to his second coming. Are you covered by the blood? Let's pray.